Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. Take my words and speak through them. Take our ears and hear through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Welcome this morning. We are going to continue our Alpha series today, and our topic today is, Who is Jesus? And I chose to preach this. When I was an, I was an only child, and I was born to an older couple. My mother was a devout Episcopalian. My father was a priester. I always remember my mother talking about high church. We did not have an Episcopal church in the town where we lived nearby, so I grew up as a Presbyterian. My best friend was a Roman Catholic, and I was always intrigued by his, their customs and their religious philosophy. I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and I met my best friend there 67 years ago. I skated through high school going to church on Sundays, and I dropped out spiritually through college. But all the time, I knew that God and Jesus, his son, were with me and in my spirit, though my spiritual life was still very immature. My second marriage was to a devout Episcopalian in 1978, and the memories of my mother's teachings surged within me. As I think back now, I always knew Jesus, and I know that my prayers were always heard. As I've told some of you my story, I thought about giving up engineering and becoming a priest after I was confirmed in 1988. As I drove away from the meeting at the church with our priest about ordination, a voice called out, Bill. Knowing I was totally alone in my truck, I said, yes, Lord. The reply was, I did everything I could to get you through engineering school. Go do your ministry that way, and we will talk about it later. As an engineer, I work in facts and figures. I have to be able to prove what I do. However, that's my physical life. Growing up these past 20 years and more recently in my time since Iona and my ordination, my spiritual life has grown exponentially. Last week, Father Rupert talked about two stomachs, one with food, the physical life, and one with rice, the spiritual life. However, in my spiritual life, I do not have to have any proof that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, taught us humans about God and God's love for us, was crucified, died, and was buried in the tomb, and rose on the third day and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God. I believe, and my strong faith supports me in my belief. Fast forward. Here it is later. And Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and he is the head of my life. 
The most important part of my life is sharing the good news of Jesus with those who I come in contact with through word and example. So what evidence is there for Christianity? You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. The science, of course, is very important, but science answers different questions to faith. Science answers the questions, when and how did this world come into being? What it can't answer to the question is who and why. Let's have an example. I've got here a cake. Now this cake, <clears throat> supposing it was sent off to scientists, they would be able to tell perhaps what the ingredients are that were put into the cake. They might be able to tell you how it was made. They might be able to even work out when it was made but they wouldn't be able to tell you who made it and why. Actually, the answer is I bought this cake, and it was made by somebody else. But let's pretend for a moment that I made it. It's a very nice cake. Well, let's be honest, I had to have a little help. But it's still a little bit of a mess, but it's only who can, it's only who can tell and why I made it. The reason I made it was for this visual presentation and also because next Tuesday is my birthday. So I'm going to save it for my birthday. But the, only the creator can tell you who made it and why. So there's a difference between science and faith. Science is very important because it deals with scientific questions. But equally, faith is really important because it answers the very fundamental questions about life. And everybody has faith. Even an atheist has faith that there is no God. You can't prove that mathematically or scientifically, but for those of us who believe in Jesus, we do go on the basis of evidence. I believe that I myself have always been a Christian. Even in the times I wasn't really involved. And that belief is a kind of blind leap of faith. If there's no evidence at all, I just had to believe. And I believe there is good historical evidence. You know, historical evidence is evidence. Scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence. A lawyer uses what you might call historical evidence. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, they're doing it based on things that happened in history, evidence of history. And every time a jury makes a decision, it is a step of faith. And so it is that we have to make up our minds about Jesus, and that is a step of faith. I believe in God because of Jesus. It seems to me that the resurrection of Jesus, which I came to understand and believe in, and will come back to this, strongly suggests that the world has a creator 
And that creator is to be seen in terms of and through the lens eyes of Jesus. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. You can't get to know someone unless they reveal themselves. No one can get to know me unless I reveal myself. And if there is a God and he wanted to reveal himself, what would be the best way to do it? It would seem logical that he would reveal himself in a way that we could understand him in a human being like us. So what's the evidence? First of all, what is the evidence that Jesus even existed? Some people say, well, you know, maybe Jesus didn't even exist. But there's an overwhelming historical evidence. No serious historian would suggest that Jesus didn't exist. We know from evidence outside the New Testament that Jesus existed from historians like Tetricus and Suetonius. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote this about Jesus. There was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and his alleged resurrection. So there's evidence from outside the New Testament. But most of our evidence comes from inside the New Testament. Now, the New Testament was written a long time ago, and people say, how do we know that what was written hasn't been changed over time? And the answer is, we do know. A science called textual criticism. Essentially, the way textual criticism works is like this. The more manuscripts that you have, and the earlier they are, the more you can be sure that what was originally said is correct. I have a list here of six different works beginning in 488 AD, uh, BC, BC, going up through the New Testament that was written between 40 and 100 AD. These documents of which there are physical copies, talk about Jesus. One of the greatest ever textual critics, F.J.A. Hort, said this, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who is he? We know that he was fully human. He had a body, emotions, experiences. But many today would say, yes, he was a human being. We know that he existed and maybe he was a great human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. To suggest he was the Son of God, to suggest he is God, is going too far. So there are two parts to this argument. The first part of the argument is what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's the end of the argument. 
And even if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? Let's take the first part. What did Jesus say about himself? The first bit of evidence here is that Jesus' teaching was centered on himself. Great religious leaders point away from themselves and they say, don't look at me, look to God. Jesus, who person, per, personified humility, said, look at me, come to me. This question of ultimate meaning and purpose what is our life about? This sense of what you might call a spiritual hunger, this sense that others don't quite satisfy, however good these things are, there's always the slight void, the sense that something is missing. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you want that hunger satisfied, come to me. Now, there's stuff in our lives that we don't like. I have stuff in my life that I don't like. I have things, I have habits that are somewhat addictive. But Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, if Jesus, he was saying, if I set you free, you really will be free. Then there's all the stuff we carry about. Worry, anxiety, fear, guilt, the list goes on and on. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you want peace, peace of mind, come to me. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. A little child was drawing a picture of God in class one day. The teacher said, what are you doing? The child said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, what do you mean? You can't draw a picture of God. Nobody knows what God looks like. The child looked up at her and said, well, they will in a minute. Jesus said, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And then there were his indirect claims. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, if someone offends you, you can forgive them. But you can't go up to somebody, some random person, and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus did that, the lawyer said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgiveness is at the heart of what Jesus came to do to make forgiveness possible. It's in the heart of all Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, a Christian is someone who forgives the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And then there were his direct claims. There are so many of them. We don't have time to look at them all. But I just want to share one. 
If you have a Bible, turn to John 10, 30 through 33. Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. A claim tantamount to the claim to be God was blasphemy in the eyes of the people at the time. And they picked up the stones to stone him. Jesus said, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think if you look at the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. It's an astonishing claim. But of course, a claim like that needs to be tested. And really, if you think about it, there are only really three possibilities. Either it was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it was not true, in which case he was a fraud. Or else it was not true, and he simply didn't realize it was not true. He generally thought he was God, in which case he was deluded, or we would say insane. But logically, there's really only one other possibility, and that is that it's true. When C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make up your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The second part of the argument was he is right in what he said about himself. What's the evidence to support his claims? And here's the first evidence. It's teaching. The teaching of Jesus is widely acknowledged to be the greatest teaching of all times. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto other people as you would have them do unto you. And this totally revolutionary statement, the first person to say this, love your enemy. Jesus' teachings have been the foundation of the entire civilization in the West. Many of our laws were originally founded on the teaching of Jesus. We've advanced in every field of science and technology. Think how much we've advanced in the last 10 years in science and technology. Yet in 2,000 years, no one has improved on the moral teaching of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you would expect God to speak. So that's the first piece of evidence, his teaching. Secondly, his life, what he did. I initially thought Christianity was, eh. you know, I thought Jesus would be the kind of person who would turn water, wine into water, 
I was amazed to read of Jesus going to a party. It would have been such fun to be with Jesus. He went to the party. The wine ran out. He said, go get those jars, fill them with bath water, and start pouring it out for the guests. And they started pouring it out, and out came Chateau Lafitte 45, B.C., that is. Not just his miracles, but his love for all the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and ultimately laying his life down for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one, that, no one than this than to lay down a life for his friends. And his character has impressed millions of people who wouldn't call themselves Christian. Time magazine described Jesus as the most persistent symbol of purity, selfishness, and love in the history of humanity. His enemies could find no fault, and his friends who really knew him said, this guy's without sin. I often think that the real test of character comes out when we're under pressure. We will kind of automatically go back to the basic fundamental feelings that are deep within us. And Jesus, when he was being tortured, said about his torturers, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And then his fulfillment of the prophecy. No one else in history of the world has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Well, you might say, maybe he got a hold of the Old Testament. He read all the prophecies and thought, Right, I better get around to fulfilling all of these. The problem is that the sheer number of them, and humanly speaking, he had no control. The exact death, the manner of his death was prophesied. The place of his burial, his resurrection, even the place of his birth was prophesied. You know, reading through, oh, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Uh-oh, it's too late. And then his conquest of death. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. It's so relevant to every single person here because statistically, one in one die. There was a headline in The Onion, a satirical magazine. World death rate holding steady at 100%. That's the reality. You know, the Victorians used to talk a lot about death, but they never talked about sex. We talk a lot about sex, but we don't talk about death. It's just something we don't mention. It's said in one of the hospitals, they say, you must never use the word death. They have a politically correct way of describing it. Negative patient care outcome. But people die nevertheless. They trip on the last speed bump of life and go from this life to eternal life. And you, when you go to a funeral and the coffin is put into the ground, it looks absolutely final. And it is, physically, 
unless death has been conquered, unless when Jesus died and was buried, he was raised to life. If he was, then there's hope beyond this life for us also. But is it just wishful thinking? It is unless there's evidence. What is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus? First of all, his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained why Jesus' body was not there on that first Easter day. People have come up with all sorts of explanations. The authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when everybody was saying that Jesus had been risen and seen? They couldn't. When the disciples heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they ran to the tomb, and when they got to the tomb, they looked in, and what they found were the grave clothes of Jesus still lying there. The only valuable thing that a robber could steal was still there, and they'd collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when a butterfly has vanished. And the piece that had been around his head had been folded up and put in another place. And it says when they saw that, they believed. So not only his absence from the tomb, then his presence with the disciples, Jesus was seen on several occasions, on one occasion by over 500 people. All saw him on the same occasion. People say hallucination. Hallucination does occur amongst high-strung, highly imaginable, very nervous people, or people who are sick or on drugs. The disciples don't fit into those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. They were tough fishermen. They were tax collectors. And tax collectors don't hallucinate. And then there was a transformation of the disciples. Here was a group of people, depressed, disillusioned, and suddenly they're going around saying, we've seen Jesus. He's really alive. Most of the disciples died pretty horrific deaths as a result of their beliefs. They were crucified, they were beheaded, they were tortured. And all they had to say was, no, 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 that actually is not true. We really didn't see him. But they didn't. Those people would not have died for something that they would have known was not true. But they knew it was true because they had seen the risen Jesus. As a result, this movement, it's a movement without precedent in the history of the world swept the whole known world, and it has no parallel, and it's still happening today. There are about 2,300 million Christians in the world today. Every economic, social, and intellectual background, and they all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus. So when we look at what Jesus claimed about himself, the first part of the argument, it's clear that Jesus did claim to be a man whose identity was God. Was he defuted? Was he a fraud? When you look at, 
when I look at the evidence of his teaching, the things that he did, his character, the fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, it seems to me absurd, illogical, and unbelievable to say he was insane or a fraud. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supported evidence of what Jesus said about himself was true. For me, I've not had to go through this entire process to believe that Jesus lived and died for my sins, that Jesus is still alive in my soul and my spirit. I have just always believed. For some, they came to the conclusion it's true. But it's one thing to believe it here, and for many, they tried to put it off because it wasn't keen on the implications of being true to their life. And many moments throughout my life, I experienced in my heart real encounters with Jesus, which changed my life in a very radical way. From laying prostrate at the altar at St. John's in 1977, asking for forgiveness from my workaholism, and being asked to be released from that heavy weight around my neck, and seeing this black vision leaving my body, to when my rotator cuffs were both torn, and the doctor said I would never raise my hands again, and I would never be able to raise, lift more than five pounds, to saying I would never get married again, and finding a woman who God chose for me, and now being married for 20 years and for many more to come. And I've experienced Jesus many times. And rather than those encounter being some kind of a terrible thing that was going to happen, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. And that's what I've experienced for my last 72 years. Of course, it's not always easy. Of course, there's ups and downs. Of course, I mess up. But I found it is really true. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is really a hope beyond this life. And all of my encounters allowing my spiritual life to blossom has totally changed my life. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org. And peace be with you.